it says here in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Seated. So, Brother Laurie. Thank you very much. Um, I would uh, like to thank you again, for Laurie, for coming and stepping in. It is a joy for, for us to hear. I'd like us to bow in prayer first thing. Lord, we thank you again today for the word of God. It's a living word. You said the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are truth. And Lord, we, we, we cherish this good old book that has been preserved for us down through the centuries at the cost, Lord, of many lives. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the same today as you were yesterday, and you'll be the same tomorrow. And as we look into your sacred page today, we pray that you will be present, Lord, to anoint these lips of clay and to anoint the ears and hearts of those who listen. And may we go from this place today saying it was good to be in the house of the Lord. And having profited, Lord, as we have listened to what you have to say, hide me, Lord, behind the cross. May Jesus alone be seen. And may you anoint these lips of clay. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have... Uh, being blessed this week as I've been meditating on what we are going to present to you today. And I know I've got an awful lot more material here than what I could possibly cover in a sermon. So I'm not going to try to cover it all. But I'll just go over this sheet that was handed out to you for just a moment. You will notice that there are the, the center hole here. <laughs> it uh, wiped out a very precious word there. Believers is what is being kind of half typed out or punched out of there. Believers collectively are known as a church, as a body, as a building or temple, as a family, as a man, as a bride, and as a soldier. All of this is found in the book of Ephesians. You gather a church, you grow a body, you build a temple, you raise a family, you mature a man, you adorn a bride, and you arm and train a soldier. And uh, each one of these has a, uh, a connection and uh, portrays a certain aspect of truth. And you will notice when you get to the right-hand margin that there is a unity to all of this. 
the Bible has a lot to say about unity. The Bible tells us that God has made unity and he's told us to keep it. <laughs> That's our responsibility. And, but uh, you'll notice across from the church that the unity is of many people. Um, and I want you to notice that unity is not necessarily uniformity, but it's oneness of that which is diverse. I, I've often used the illustration of an orchestra, a symphony orchestra. And uh, they've all got different shaped horns and fiddles, sizes of fiddles and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, you, as they're playing a certain piece, you might just pipe up once or twice in the whole song. But everybody, though they're playing something different, and everybody is playing a different note, it still harmonizes. And uh, as human beings, we all have different opinions on certain things, <laughs> and that's natural. And, uh, but at the same time, we can have a spirit of unity. Amen? We can love one another. We can enjoy one another. And all of these aspects of the truth are portrayed on this, on this chart. And I'm, I would like to cover maybe one or two of these today, if it's possible. And I, I, I want to speak to us about the significance of the 3,000 souls that were saved on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 souls that were redeemed on the day of Pentecost. Redemption is very, very precious to God. Redemption is something that is the paramount desire of God is that people be redeemed. He's not willing that any should perish. Now that might be speaking to Christians when it's in its proper context, but we do know that that truth is portrayed throughout the scriptures, not just for Christians. He's not willing that any should perish. And uh, he's willing that all should come to repentance, whether sinner or saint. We all have to be re repent now and then as Christians, but so does the sinner in order to find redemption. I want to start off with talking about the church. I'm going to take you on kind of a roundabout route to begin with. And... Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1 and 22, we'll go back to Ephesians if you have your Bibles. And if you want to write in some passages of uh, the references of the scriptures, you can do so on your sheet. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. So the church, the church is, uh, there is the church of Christ universal, and there is the local church. Jesus said, I will build my church. That's speaking of the universal church. I will build my church. That doesn't mean that he won't build a local one either. <laughs> but there are also, the Bible talks about churches in the plural. And so every local body of believers uh, the, that are united together in purpose. The Lord is there. 
And where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst. There's a verse of scripture that starts all the way back in the book of Genesis, believe it or not. But let's go to the 20 or the 49th chapter of Genesis. And the 10th verse. And it says this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come which I believe refers to the Messiah. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. I'll take you to another verse of scripture found in Matthew. Chapter 12 and verse 30. Because the, the church is, uh, you gather a church, and that's why I'm using those particular verses of Scripture. It says, if I cast out the devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. No, it's not the, words, the verse I want here. Okay, verse 30, he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. So he that is with me is gathering. The church grows. We gather. You reach out to people. It has to do with our relationship to the call of God. It, it, the church has reference to the fact that they are a flock. They are purchased with the precious blood of Christ as, a, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was ordained before the foundation of the world to accomplish that, that, uh, that very act of great mercy. The church is owned by the Lord, it's led by the Lord, it's protected by the Lord. I want to go also to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 we'll read from the first verse therefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envyings and evil speakings as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby if so be that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming <clears throat> as unto live and unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We are lively stones. Not just living stones, lively stones. You can be alive and be asleep. But you can't be lively and be asleep. <laughs> I like that choice of words that's put in the scripture. Lively stones. We're up and doing for God. Amen? All right. <clears throat> now, when you go to the book of Matthew, 
In the last chapter, maybe we should even take time to turn to it. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus came and spake, this is in verse 18. He spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. And that's rather a poor translation, that word teach. In some translations, it puts it make disciples. Um, and I don't know that that quite satisfies my <laughs> interpretation of it. Uh, I did a little bit of research on this. But uh, I did have a phrase that I... Yeah, I believe that it refers to them being purveyors of truth. Okay? I think that's better definition than just the word go and teach all nations, but be a purveyor of truth. If you're a purveyor of truth, you will make disciples... Uh, but uh, we are to purvey truth. We are to convey truth. And that our, is our mission in life. And Jesus told them, that's the last thing that is reported for you in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. The last thing that's reported to you in the Gospel of Mark is go ye into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. So we're going to all the world. I want you to notice all the world. And that's what he said here back in Matthew as well. Go to all nations, not just some nations. Go to all nations and go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now every major thing that happened within a short period of time was done in the presence of masses of people. John the Baptist introduced Jesus to the world, and he did so when he was baptizing at the River Jordan, when all Jerusalem went out to him, Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of, of that territory. They came from all over the place, and it was while he was baptizing Jesus that the Spirit of God descended, and a voice came from heaven saying, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. It was done in the presence of many people. When it came to the Passover feast, again, one of the um, pilgrimage pieces, it's more or less what they were called, is when people came on a pilgrimage, they were required by God to do so, in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 16, and there's also a verse in Exodus that says the same thing. It was required that three times a year they go up to Jerusalem or the place where God placed his name. And, uh, of course, that varied down through their history until it comes to the time when Jesus was here on earth. And Jerusalem for many years had been considered the place where God placed his name. And uh, <clears throat> so they were to come to Jerusalem. Every male, it says, not some, every male 
shall go up to Jerusalem three times a year, the feast of the Passover. Now they came by the thousands to Jerusalem. And while the Passover was in, in place, that's when Jesus had his trial. Of course, before that, he went to the feast uh, many times before. It tells us that he even performed miracles at the Passover. Uh, that was their custom, as, as was their custom. Jesus' parents went up to the Passover every year. He went up to the Passover. Uh, he was, when he was 12 years of age, you have him talking with the doctors of the law and so on. That was their custom. That was what was required by the, under the Old Testament system. And Jesus abided by those rules and those regulations until he became the final Passover lamb. People there by the thousands. It was the custom, and according to Scripture, under the Old Testament system, that the spotless lamb, the high priest would go out and he would search for a lamb that to his estimation and maybe others that were with him was the most perfect lamb that they could set their eyes on. Not a blemish, not a spot. An absolute perfect lamb. It was to be a spotless sacrifice. And they brought that lamb into Jerusalem four days prior to the Passover for inspection. If anybody could find anything wrong with that lamb over a four-day period, they would get another one. It was under inspection. And there was always a big celebration and an awful lot of people as the lamb was brought in. That's when Jesus came four days before the Passover. And he came riding on a donkey. The Passover lamb came to Jerusalem for inspection. For whatever reasons, the spiritual leaders so-called of that day rejected, did not receive him. They actually crucified him. They, they caused the multitudes, they, they, they caused there to be a, a, a rising up, a rebellion, where the, the masses cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Now that happened on the Passover. The Passover feast or was followed was on, a, on the 14th day of, the, of that month and the feast of unleavened bread followed immediately after the Passover. The Passover was only one day. The feast of unleavened bread which followed was a feast of seven days. And in the midst of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, rather significant, don't you think? 
Jesus is the unleavened bread. But in that feast, after he had been crucified, while all these masses were still in Jerusalem, he rose from the dead. I know they tried to hush it up. The scriptures tell us that they paid the soldiers that had been guarding the tomb big money to keep their mouth shut. We'll, we'll pay the governor, pay him off if necessary, if word comes to the governor of what has transpired. Imagine all of this and the disciples themselves who had followed Jesus for three and a half years, practically day and night, saw what happened to their leader. Jesus dismissed those disciples in the garden when he was praying and the, when the soldiers came to arrest him. He said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, if that's so, let these men go. I'm he. I'm the one you're looking for. And I think they were glad to get out of there. <laughs> we know that Peter followed afar off and he denied his Lord three times. Thank God he went out and wept bitterly. I believe he repented with genuine repentance. <laughs> but this was a traumatic day for those disciples. Traumatic for the early church. Traumatic for all those that put their faith and their confidence in Jesus. We don't know how many believers there were. We do know that after his resurrection, he appeared to 500 brethren at once, the scripture says. So there were quite a number of people. Now, exactly 50 days from the day of Passover, you have the Feast of Pentecost, which is another feast that the Jews were required to attend. Now, who were these people that were there on the day of Pentecost? I believe that they were much the same crowd that were there at the Passover. Every male must attend. Go to with me to Acts chapter 1. And I'm not going to be speaking on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so don't get alarmed. But I want you to notice in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, this is the last thing, the last thing that Jesus said before he was taken up. He said, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be what? Witnesses unto me. Witnesses unto me. That's the mission of the church. And they were to be empowered to be witnesses.
Now, where does this transpire? I'm sure you've heard, as I have heard, many things preached about that on the day of Pentecost, they were in an upper room when the Holy Spirit descended. It doesn't say that in the scripture. It does tell us that there was an upper room where abode Peter and John and list the whole group, all the disciples and even the mother of Jesus and a few others. There was an upper room. But that is not where the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit was sent to the church on the day of Pentecost, that's not where. I've heard them say that they went down into the streets of Jerusalem and did their speaking to people in their own languages. You can't find that in the Bible either. Where were these people on the day of Pentecost? Now, the last thing Jesus told them to do, don't you depart from Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. He was going to send the Holy Spirit. And for what purpose? That you might be witnesses unto me. Where were they? I believe that they were in Solomon's temple. Now, I think I can prove that from Scripture. The last chapter of the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24, verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. He led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them that he was, partake, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And where did they go? Just as he told them to do. Don't depart from Jerusalem. It says they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple. Not in the upper room. That's where they abode. That's where they lived. The upper room. But here, they were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Now they were to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit to make them witnesses. Now I can give you many more verses of Scripture, and if you want to jot them down, I'll give them to you. We find that Jesus himself taught in the temple in Solomon's porch. In John chapter 10, verse 23. I just read you Luke chapter 24, where they were continually in the temple. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says, And they continued daily in the temple. Now, if you continue doing something, it means you have already been doing it, right? And then you also have Acts chapter 5 and verse 42. There's a, I think there's actually one in Acts, in Acts chapter 3, if I'm not mistaken, which specifically talks about them being in Solomon's temple. 
And you've got Acts chapter 5 and verse 42 and Acts 5 and verse 12. They were in Solomon's temple on the day of Pentecost. With all the multitudes that were around them, thousands and thousands of people. Now Solomon's porch wasn't a small area. It was approximately 22,000 square feet. And just looking at this auditorium here, I would estimate it to be approximately 3,000. About seven times the size of this sanctuary. Now it's true that when the, the Holy Spirit came on the disciples, that it attracted a multitude. Why? Because they were all around the temple. That's, they, they were there for that purpose. They were there. That, that was one of the feasts they had to attend. But Peter got up and gave explanation of all that had been transpiring. And what does it tell us? It says he stood up with the 11. Pastor Gene, wouldn't you like to stand in the pulpit with 11 apostles surrounding you in a semicircle saying amen, brother? <laughs> it wasn't just Peter that did the talking, but he was backed up. They gave witness. That's what Jesus said would happen. That's what he told them to do. He said, you wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power to, so that you will be witnesses unto me. And they got up and gave witness. And Peter preached a message in which he blamed without any contradiction of the fact. He said, you crucified and slew the Son of God, the Messiah. You, you people just 50 days before, just 50 days ago, you crucified the Lord. Now whether the people as a whole that came to this on this occasion, whether they knew that there had been a resurrection or not, we are not told that when Jesus rose from the dead, that they not, it was all tried to be shushed up. And I know the disciples themselves kind of hid themselves for a while, not knowing what in the world's going to happen. Our leader <laughs> has died, but when he, when he rose from the dead, they were still scared. You know, this was all such a traumatic experience in just a matter of days. Believe it or not, I saw a verse of scripture today I'd never seen before, though I may have read it I don't know how many times. Do you know that it really took a lot to convince the disciples that Jesus really rose from the dead? Thomas wouldn't believe until Jesus really showed him his hands. And, and when the ladies came back from the, from the tomb and told them, they, you know, can't believe it. When Jesus himself drew near to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, we, thought it had, this, we thought that he was the one. 
Now we don't know what to make of it all. You know, this is about the long and short of it. Until he finally broke bread with them and their eyes were opened and they realized who he was. But I found a verse of scripture in Matthew. Right after the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples departed and went into Galilee, I believe it was, where Jesus told them to meet him on a certain mountain. And when they went up to the mountain and they saw him, they fell down and worshipped him. But some had reservations. Some didn't know whether to believe it was him or not. And that was the disciples, that was the apostles. It tells us specifically that it was the eleven that went to the mountain. They had been so shaken up with all that had transpired that it took them a few days to come to the realization that he really was raised from the dead. This is he. <laughs> now, of course, that was right after the resurrection. He appeared many times after that to them. For 40 days he appeared to them and talked with them. It's 50 days from the Passover until the Feast of Pentecost. Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Then he was with the disciples for 40, which means that for seven days, it was seven days until the Spirit of the Lord was launched the church, we might say. In the meantime, they chose someone to take Judas's place. And they were continually in the temple waiting on the Lord. Now, I want you to look at Acts chapter 2. I want you to notice who all were there. Verse 5 of chapter 2, there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, sincere men, so many translations use different phrases there, out of every nation under heaven. Jesus told the disciples, you go and make disciples out of every nation. Mark said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Here we've got people out of every nation under heaven. Now, I didn't say that. The Bible says that. That's phenomenal. Every nation under heaven. And it lists them for you approximately 15 at lists. In verse 8, Parthians, Medes, 
Elamites and dwellers of Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, in Egypt, and in parts of Libya, about Cyrene. Strangers of Rome, not only Jews, but Gentiles. Jews and proselytes, Gentiles, Cretes and Arabians. People from every nation under heaven. And when Peter got up along with the 11 and preached to them and blamed them for being a part just 50 days before of the crowd that rebelled and crucified Jesus, their hearts were pricked, the Bible says, and they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? The Bible also tells us that when the Holy Spirit would come, what would he do? He will convince who? The world. He will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. We're going into all the world. We're preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit will convince the world. Believe it or not, I don't know whether you believe this or not, but in my heart, I honestly do believe that there is not such a thing as people not knowing, having some conscience as to what is right and what is wrong. People know what sin is. Teacher was talking to her class and she said to them, who can tell me what sin is? All kinds of answers came out. Finally, one little boy said, it's when you don't feel very good inside after you have said something or done something that wasn't right. A sin. Pretty good answer for a little, little child. Now, believe it or not, when 3,000 souls were saved, why does it list all of these people? For one reason was, that the gospel was proclaimed on that day to, three, to a multitude of people, tens of thousands, and 3,000 souls were saved, and those people go back home. Now, how many out of them were local? We don't know. It doesn't say 3,000 souls were in Jerusalem. It says 3,000 souls were saved. And out of that, there were a percentage of people that went and preached the gospel. That is a phenomenal introduction to the Holy Spirit working in the hearts and lives of men, bringing people to repentance, and they go home with the good news. My, isn't that phenomenal? That's the start of the church. <laughs> Called out ones, Ecclesia. I got excited when I saw all of that. I was awake at 3 o'clock this morning. I had me a hallelujah time. My. 
3,000 souls. Devout. They were devout people. They were people that wanted the truth. They were people that wanted to follow God. They wanted to. And the Lord saw to it that they were redeemed, washed in the precious blood of Christ, sent home with a glorious message. We have found him whom the prophets did say should come. Hallelujah. Doesn't look like I'm going to get very far in anything else, does it? Maybe that's as far as the Lord wants me to go. What was the Holy Spirit sent into the world for to make us witnesses? To regenerate us, not just to inform us, but to transform us and make us new creatures in Christ Jesus. And the Bible says that in the ages to come, we will explore the goodness and the greatness of God. In the ages to come, past both present and on into the future. You get revelation as you read the scriptures day by day. Your knowledge of Christ grows. There's another one that's very, very interesting, and that's the building of a temple according to the pattern. Every, the Old Testament templar, uh, tabernacle and Solomon's temple, they had to be built precisely according to the pattern that was given them by God. Why? Because it portrayed a truth. It foreshadowed. I think I'm going to stop there because I haven't time to do justice to any more of them. But let's pray.